You can take a seat. It's good to see you this morning. To those of you who are in the sanctuary, I want to welcome you here. To those of you online, it's called a mustache, okay? I know you can hardly see it. And uh, I know you're judging me. My name's Eric. I'm so glad. So glad to be here. Um, I am going to open up the word for us in just a minute. And uh, I, I just so love um, our time of worship just now. So appreciate the band and, uh, and Pastor Mike. You know, I, I want to say this. At, at 4 p.m. today is the family service. And uh, it is such a joy. I guess I'd say this, especially to those of you who are, who are watching online. I know some families, this is, it's such a hard time in the world to figure out how to go to church together and encourage you guys to consider the Sunday night service at uh, 4 p.m. I will be there tonight not to preach, but to shred because I'm in the band and we're playing VBS songs and it's going to be amazing. So you can come back too. So uh, what we're going to do this morning is open God's word together, which is what we always do to the gospel of Luke chapter 20. And in the gospels, what we do as we read through them, it's important to know uh, and remind ourselves where we have been and then where we are now and then where we're going in this story that's unfolding. And so uh, to get us up to speed, Jesus has entered into Jerusalem. These are the, the final days of his ministry on earth before the cross. He is going to the cross, which is no surprise to him. And he is in a, like a literal showdown with the religious leaders of the time of, of, um, of Israel. And they are increasingly more committed to kill him. The more that he presses in and the more that he speaks truth, um, it raises this kind of hatred and disdain for him. And so there has been this um, event that has just happened as Jesus has cleared the temple, which is the place where the religious leaders considered, they considered it to be their own. And Jesus came in and said, actually, this is my father's house. And it's supposed to be a house of prayer. And he pronounces judgment on what had been happening in God's house. And so it stirs up even more um, anger within them. And Jesus in these moments is not passive or apologetic. He's active and, and authoritative as he clears and cleanses the temple. One gospel account has him in this sort of like Indiana Jones moment with a whip. I don't know what he did with it, but he had one apparently. And he was clearing the way for God's purposes. And so it's in the aftermath. And I would even say as the dust has settled from this sort of one man riot that Jesus has just done. Notice that none of the disciples are with him on this. He's just, he's overturning tables by himself. He's calling out leaders and, and, and then he stands alone and he tells this parable that that he speaks to not just the religious leaders, but anybody there who will listen to him. And, and I guess I would argue that he's speaking this to us as well. And so the title of this sermon, which is Jesus's sermon, is God's Final Plea. And it comes to us in Luke chapter 20, in verse 9. It says this, And Jesus began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and led it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. And when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty handed. 
and he sent another servant. But they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. I'm going to pause right there because this is important. Some of the parables, are, it, it's tricky to figure out who the characters are. This is not one of those parables. Every listener would have known exactly who was in this story and who each character represented. And so before we go on, I just want to point out to you who's who in this story that Jesus is telling. The landowner, the man who planted a vineyard, is God himself. The tenants are the religious leaders, the, the scribes, the priests, the principal of men. We'll just, we'll just call them the leaders of Israel. The servants, or perhaps some of your translations use the word messengers, the messengers of the prophets. And most specifically and recently, John the Baptist, the beloved son is Jesus, duh. And the vineyard. Strangely, the vineyard is a character in this story. The vineyard is actually a people in this story. More on that in a minute. And they're all there listening. And they're not just listening to a story, but they are hearing a story, a drama unfold that they are intimately a part of. And so let's continue. We'll start again in verse 13. It says, then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush them. And this is God's word. And the truth is, is that the, the, the parables are hard. In some ways, like this parable is not hard to understand, but there's just so much there. There's so many cross-references we can go to. And, and if you're new to the Bible, what we mean by cross-references is often in the Bible, the Bible quotes the Bible. Does that make sense? And so there's so many different places that we could turn to, and surely we won't turn to all of them. And many of you will write emails to me about the ones that I didn't turn to. But nevertheless, I think that there's a way to walk into this story and to learn from it. And, and our guide is actually going to be verse 9. And so I want to put verse 9 back on the screen and, and read that to you. It says that a man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. So we'll do this morning and how we'll, how we'll encounter and, and hopefully understand this, this great parable, this teaching of Jesus, is we're going to look at it three different times and through three different lenses or perspectives. The first is going to be the landowner. The second is going to be the vineyard. Again, who is the vineyard? And finally, we'll look at the tenants. Who are they? What do we learn from them? 
So we start with the landowner. And again, this is, this is not controversial. There is not a multiplicity of, of interpretations on who the landowner is. It is God. And everybody who heard the story would have known that. And I think that what is so wonderful about Jesus that is even in this moment, and remember what has just happened is he has, he has, with the whip and with the tables, and I don't know what it looked like, but he has just disrupted the most sacred place in all of Jerusalem for God's people. He has disrupted it and he has called out injustices within it. And what strikes me so much is that even in this righteous anger that he has, Jesus tells a story that perhaps above all is about the heart of God, about what God wants, about what God is like. And what he doesn't do, and um, he doesn't just do this thing on like, here's some attributes about God. Now, I love studying attributes about God, and you should as well. There's so much we can learn about his character. But what Jesus gives us in this moment is action. It's activity. These are verbs. And so I am gonna, what I'm going to do this morning as we look at the landowner is I'm going to give you six actions that he does. This very well likely may be the longest sermon I ever preached. So, and that's just like the first part of it. Okay. But just buckle up. We're going to do this together. So, um, six actions that the landowner does. I'm going to tell them to you. I think you should write them down, but I can't make you do that. But I want to, as, as we're walking through this, I want to ask you a question. Does, does what I say about what the landowner does, does that sound like God to you? Here's the first thing that he does. And then we'll look at them more deeply. The landowner plants. And then he gives. And then he sends. And he demands. And he pursues. And he judges. Does it sound like God? So each one of these activities, each thing that I just told you, I'm not making it up. It actually just comes straight out of the text for us. Again, in verse nine, if we put it back up, the first thing that we learn about this landowner is that he plants something. So we ought not to think of of like a a wealthy, aloof, kind of rich guy who's just kind of throwing his his money around. This This is a man who's willing to get his hands dirty to do the work of planting. It's like a gardener. And it's the first thing that we learn about the landowner is that he's willing to step in to create something. He plants. The second thing that we see is that he gives. Did you notice that it, it tells us that one of the first things it says, it says, this man, he planted a vineyard And it says, he let it out to tenants. That word let, it's kind of an interesting word. The idea is is renting or stewardship. So it's his property, but he he lets other people reap the benefits of his land. He invites partners to to step into the work that he's doing. Uh, There's a a Bible word for it, perhaps. It's co-laborers. It's his property, it's his possession, but he invites people to join him in what he's doing. Does that sound like God? The third thing he does is he sends. 
I want to look at verse 10. Notice this with me. The, the landowner, it says that he leaves, but it doesn't say that he leaves so that we think that he's disinterested or that he's just going, you know, go make some more money doing something else. It just simply says that he leaves. But after he leaves, he sends representatives or ambassadors. He sends messengers back into the vineyard. And they, these messengers represent the landowner. They're even able to speak for him. That's the third thing. The fourth thing he does is he demands. He demands that he receive the fruit of his vineyard. So yes, he's invited these, these people to work kind of in his kingdom, if you will, but he demands that they show him the fruit that's his, that he deserves. He has every right to do this. As, as the people are listening to this story, they would have simply nodded along at this point, saying, no, he has, he has every right to send messengers to, to bring to him what is rightfully his, that he demands. Now, I'll take a, sh a short break to tell you about my first job. And um, this is not a joke, but my guess is if you know me, you will scoff at this. But my first career was in farming, okay? Did you not? Okay, you don't believe me. So I'm 14 years old, and the very first job I get is a, is a tomato picker. And I'm not kidding. So I, uh, there was a landowner, this is true, his name was Farmer Tom. And he, we called him that per his instruction, we literally referred to him as Farmer Tom. And uh, Farmer Tom hired me and my moron friends. This was a foolish decision of his, but he did it anyways. He hired us one summer to work in his land and on his farm to pick fruit. And, um, and it was our job. This was like our first job, me and my friends. And, and in between like starting like vegetable like fights in, in the field where we would huck tomatoes at each other, in between all of that, we did a lot of really hard work, okay? And um, one of the amazing things about working in farming and in particular working for, um, for Farmer Tom was that each and every day would end with this sort of like reckoning of the reality of how hard we worked. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like we had to work really hard. This, and, and, and everything, everything I mean, I've, I feel like it's, it's, I mean, this is a very small farm. This is like organic farming before it was cool. I mean, maybe it's always been cool, but it's really hard work. And, and we would just, every day we would, we would reckon with the reality of how hard we'd work. He'd literally stand there and he'd be like, how many wheelbarrows full of tomatoes do you have? How many buckets of cucumbers do you have? How many, and, and, and we just lived every day sort of in this, in this cycle of, of, of we work on his land and then he says, what do you have to show me? And, and he was a great, and still is a great man. And he would, he would give to us out of the overflow. Every day we'd, we'd get to bring home you know, fruit to our families and, uh, and he even paid us to do this job. So it was, it was really a, a wonderful thing, but there was something that was incredibly clear all the time was that we were working on his land. And it was a gift to be able to do that. And he had every right to demand at the end of the day to see what we had that was his. So that's the fourth thing that the landowner does. He demands. And the fifth thing that the landowner does is he pursues. 
Now, this is an often overlooked part of this story is that the landowner, and and I'm talking about the parable that we just read, the amount of dishonor and disgrace that that is put on him throughout the story is shocking. It's his land. It's his vineyard. He sends servants to, to, to look for the fruit of, of what was his. And what do they do to the first servant? They beat him. And they send him away. And so what does he do? He sends another. He sends another servant to to look for the fruit of what is actually his. And they beat him up as well. And then he sends a third servant and they beat him up as well and they send him back empty handed. And finally, he sends his most, his truest representative, his son, and they kill him. And what does this tell us about the landowner? It's that he pursues, that he's persistent. By any measure in human history, we would read a story like this and say, he should have, the landowner should have removed these tenants after the first servant comes back empty-handed. And if not after the first, then after the second. And if not after the third, how how could he do anything else? But he sends his beloved son and they kill him. And it is after that that he judges which is the sixth thing that he does. And if we're paying attention to the story, you know, sometimes we read stories like this and we're like, how could he be so judgy? And it, it, the real question is, how could he not have judged sooner? He had every right to judge. And finally, he does. Finally, he does that. And that is how the, the parable ends in judgment. And so the reality is, is that this story is not merely allegorical or parabolical. This story is theological. What Jesus is doing as he stands in front of the religious leaders and and the people of Israel who are standing there and his disciples is he is telling them the story of God. The whole story of redemptive history up till this point, and he is saying redemptive history is finding its apex right now in my life. And it's a sermon to them. It's a sermon about the heart of God. And what we realize if we pay attention is that Jesus is telling us what matters most to God. It's not like a thing. The vineyard is, is more than just a place. It's, it's, not, it's not a thing. The vineyard is a people. And now we're going to look at the story through the vineyard. And there's actually very little debate on, about who the vineyard is. Now, I could give you like a long seminary nerd nerd out, but I'll just, I'll, I'll sum it up in one, in one verse. In Isaiah, you don't have to turn there, but in Isaiah 5, verses 7, we learn exactly who the vineyard is. And I'll read that to you now. Do we have it? Okay. For the vineyard, this is Isaiah 5, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. 
So again, I say that the vineyard is not so much a place, but a people in a place. And again, I say the thing that matters most to God is people. So here's what I'll do. I'll give you the whole Bible up till this point in two minutes, okay? Buckle up, here we go. God is like this landowner. He plants. Or to use some of the more overt biblical language, he creates. But he's not like an absent deity who who sort of just forms a world and then goes on holiday or something like that. He's more like a gardener who plants something that is growing, something that is increasing. And and what he does is he invites people into that process to steward what is his. He doesn't just create or plant things, but he forms a people. Genesis 12 says this about Abraham. Perhaps even as I'm talking about this, you're thinking about Abraham, the father of Israel. God says this in Genesis 12. He says, I will make of you, Abraham, a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And listen to this. In you, all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. So this is the vineyard. It's a people. It's God's people. And the mission of God's people is to bear fruit, to be a light, to be a blessing to the whole world, to call out to the whole world, this is what God is like. But, and this is the biblical story, they lose that vision. They lose that focus. And so what God does is he sends prophets or messengers to them, much like he does in the parable. He sends messengers to them to call him back to his covenantal love, to righteousness and justice and peace. But instead, they beat the prophets or, you know, at least ignore them. And God persists. And God pursues. And God demands that his people give their allegiance to him because he is the world's true king. He has every right to do that. He demands for that and they reject him again and he pursues and he persists and they refuse him, but he keeps coming after them in love. And then after all that, we see his judgment, but even his judgment is grace in our world. Now that's maybe a halfway decent biblical theology, but let's talk about our own lives because this story is is not just about a farmer and a land that he owns. Certainly is about God's people, but this is your story and my story as well. God made each one of us. The most precious creation of God is, is people. It's lives, it's your life, it's my life. And, and like the tenants in this story, we've, we've been invited to participate in what God is doing in the world, but what do we do? We reject him. The Bible word for it is sin. Sin is rejecting God. And what does God do? He pursues and we reject and he pursues He's persistent, coming after each one of us. One day, and this story makes it clear, one day God will return to judge all of the earth. But what you need to know right now is that he's pursuing each one of us, calling us into relationship. God is coming after you. 
And he continues to do that. So I want to ask you today, we talked about that word reconciliation this morning. Have you been reconciled to God? Today, that can happen. Step into faith in his son, Jesus. The whole story of the world is actually the story of our lives. God has stepped into our world. God has offered salvation. And the truth is, and I want, I want to tell you this, I want to just lean into this a little bit more, that there is there's no salvation apart from him. There's no joy, true eternal joy apart from him. There is no hope apart from him. There is a peace that only comes from him. It's only in Jesus that we can find this. I love St. Augustine, he said these words famously. I edited them a little bit. He says, our hearts are restless, but not until we reach herd immunity, but our hearts are restless until we find our home in God. There's a restlessness in each and every human soul that will not come home until we are made right with God. That's what God is doing in this story. Now, the metaphor of the vineyard, this is one of God's favorite metaphors in the scriptures, and it's about people. And we see this all through the scriptures, but, but here's what happens. In, in the life of Jesus, he takes a hold of this metaphor of the vineyard, which is God's people, Israel, and, and he does something truly amazing, is he expands the vineyard. The vineyard, he says, are his disciples. We just look at this with me. John 15, I actually want to encourage you to, re to turn there. We're asking the question, who is the vineyard? If we're asking that question, we must turn to John 15 and listen to Jesus talk about the vineyard. What does he say? I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Listen to this. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. And you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Who's the vineyard? We are. Jesus takes this beautiful metaphor throughout all of scripture about what is most precious to God. And he says, it's you, my disciples. It's us, his church. We're the vineyard. He's planted us. And he's invited us to join in what he is doing in all of the world. And he demands fruit from us. And we fail and he pursues we fail and he pursues even more. God's vineyard is his church. Now here's something that's true. 
It's felt like winter for a while, hasn't it? You know? This last year's felt like winter. But God is still doing something in us for the purpose of bearing fruit. The church is the vineyard. We are the light of the world, the city on a hill. God is making his final plea, his appeal through us. You are the vineyard. We are the vineyard. And as we look at John 15 here, we are called to and even reminded to, how do, how do we bear fruit as the church, as God's people? It's by remaining in him, abiding holding on to Jesus' teaching, to his love, to his purposes, to his plan for the world, to his truth. And we believe that as we do that, there's going to be a harvest. Even in this church, there will be a harvest that the world has not seen yet. God's the landowner. The vineyard is his people Israel, but it culminates and expands to become the new community, which is the church. And to end our time this morning, we're going to look at this story through the tenants. And the story that we've seen, we, we, we've seen all these characters. It's the beloved son, it's Jesus, it's the messengers. But, but uniquely, this story is being told to the leaders of Israel. It's an indictment on them for the way that they have led God's people and, and just more specifically to the way that they have failed God's people. And God is judging the religious leaders of Israel because they have failed to steward what matters most to God. They have failed. And, all throughout, and this is all throughout the gospel of, of Luke. God um, is speaking through Jesus and saying, I'm replacing this leadership and raising up something new. The, the call for God's leaders, for Israel, was to, was to love and, and serve the community in such a way that righteousness and justice and light would just shine forth throughout the world. And, and they have failed to do this. And that is the great tragedy when we read the Old Testament is that, is that, is that Israel has failed. But more specifically, the, the leaders of Israel have failed and God sends prophets to them and he's to call them back. And our story kind of culminates with this one prophet, John the Baptist, who, who has uniquely called Israel to come back to God. But they ignore him too. And Jesus is sent and they ignore him too. And now judgment is called out over the religious leaders of Israel. And it's, it, it's, it's, it's sort of a... It's, it's, a, it's a judgment that is, is not just sort of like end of the world judgment that, that happens in our story. And, and that is certainly part of it. But, but Jesus is, is, is saying things like this temple isn't going to last. And we know that that's true. In 70 AD, the temple was destroyed and sacked. and Jerusalem was effectively destroyed. And Jesus is speaking to these religious leaders and he is predicting that this is going to happen and it, and it will so we need to talk about leadership. We need to talk about spiritual leadership. What does God want from leaders? I'll say this. In verse 14, can we put verse 14 back up of, of Luke 20? 
When the tenants saw him, and that's Jesus, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. This is what the actual heart of the leaders of Israel are. They want what is God's for themselves. They want to take what is most precious to God and use it for their own gain. And God is judging that. I'll say this, spiritual leadership does this. Spiritual leadership seeks to steward what matters most to God for his glory. Spiritual abuse, which is what we see in these leaders, spiritual abuse seeks to take what matters most to God and use it for personal gain. And that is the difference between Jesus and the leaders of Israel. And it's sobering, isn't it? Because it's not just a story about 2,000 years ago. It's hard. I, I'm, I'm spending this week studying, and it's hard for me to not think about the kind of scandals of the day in the, in, in the church, kind of globally and even nationally. No, no doubt in the past year, there have been gross sins that have been exposed. It's hard not to think about a famous Christian apologist who so brilliantly and with such clarity defended the Christian faith, but as it turns out, was using funds from the ministry to endorse sex slavery. There's really no other way to say it. We know that happened. Taking what is God's lives, people, what is most precious to God, people, Many leaders have taken what's most precious to God and used it for themselves. I had a whole thing that I was going to do about Christian celebrity. Now God's judging that. We'll make that another sermon. But I'll close with this. When we read about these tenants, these stewards, that were called by God to cultivate what matters most to him, I was, I was struck by this reality that it really is a gift to play any part, great or small, in the vineyard that is the church. What a gift it is to be a part of what God is doing. That's true for me. That's true for you. What a gift it is to, to see lives grow, to see fruit happen in the church such a gift for me personally to be able to share life with you, to pray with you, to um, worship with you, and on occasion open God's word with you. This is, this is really my great joy. I love it, and I love you guys. And that's true. You know, the leaders of our church, that's, that's our heart. We don't want to take anything that is precious to God and use it for our own gain. We simply want to glorify him in everything. And it's because of this. This sermon is called God's Final Plea. And the truth is, and this is a truth that I, I'm banking on, 
God's final plea is not what we read in Luke 20 as Jesus is talking to the religious leaders. God's final plea, God's appeal to the whole world is us. The quality of our relationships, the church, the quality of our love is God's appeal to the world to be reconciled, to step into right relationship with God. God is calling that a church, our church, would live in love and serve one another in such a way that he would get all the glory, but that fruit would go out into the world that is God. And so we work hard to cultivate relationships. We work hard, we resolve to stay connected to Jesus. We search the scriptures deeply together. We want to understand what God is saying to us, what God has said and what God is is saying even now. We resolve to do that. And it's really hard work, but it's worth it. So when I was a farmer, stop laughing. When I was a farmer back in the day, picking fruit was the easiest part of the job. The hardest part of the job, the very hardest thing to do was to move the sprinklers. I'm serious. So this was a small farm. So we did everything by hand. And I'll never forget when I met a man named Lee. This was Farmer Tom's like right-hand guy. And Lee knew everything about everything. And I remember the day that I met him, he kind of like called over to me and he said, come on, we're going to go do something. And I was like, what are we going to do? We walked out into a field and we, he said, we're going to move these sprinkler lines from like this field to that field. And I was like, how are we going to do that, Lee? He's like, we're going to carry it (laughs) on our shoulders. I'm like, it's hundreds of yards away. He's like, just watch me. And I watched him and he picked up. I mean, so these are like, I don't, I don't even like, these are like 12 foot long pipes that are like that thick. And he hoisted one on his shoulder and he started walking and he was like, you coming? And I was like, I guess. <laughs> and I followed him and, and, and he was so strong and he was so steady. He was, he was so patient even with me. And I was like clumsy, falling, falling all over myself, trying to, trying to learn the way. And uh, that has been the metaphor of my last year as a pastor, just trying to find my way. The truth is, is that this year has been really hard um, for us as leaders. For, I'll just say for me as a leader, this year has been really hard. And I keep coming back to that image of, of following Lee. And he's like, I know it's hard, but just watch me do this. Just join me, just follow me. And Jesus is saying the same thing to us as a church. It's going to be worth it. It's going to be worth it. I believe that our church, for our church, the harvest is coming soon. So let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. We honor you today. You're the head of the church To use the language of this passage, you're the cornerstone. And we need to keep our eyes on you. Because you're showing us how to... How to look to God. You're showing us how to love. You're showing us how to become steadfast. 
You're pointing us to your cross. Lord, we want to say yes to you in our lives. We want to say yes to you as a church. We believe that you've planted something in us as a church community that you're not done with. That you're watering, that you're growing, that you're cultivating. We want to join you in that. We help us to do that, Lord. We help us to fix our eyes on you. To view ourselves as servants and stewards, Lord. None of this is for our own gain. It's, it's for your glory. And so we submit our lives to you in faith, Lord. And in trust, God. We believe that you will do your work, Lord, in each one of us. And so, God, let it be so. In your name we pray. Amen.